Father in heaven, in your grace and mercy, we are able to come together to worship you, to fellowship, to hear your word read, to have it proclaimed, and Lord willing, to have it impact our hearts. As we come to the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, Lord, we know that we can only scratch the surface, only look at a part of it today, but Lord, may that part be highly praised. May it be savory. May it be something that we might be caused to remember throughout the day. For this is your Lord, your word, Lord, and we just pray that we go out and be impactful. So, Father, as we come to the text today, Lord, we just pray that our hearts would be supple, that it would be a soft soil for your word to be planted in, and that it would rise up and produce a great crop, Lord, for your glory. Father, we just pray for clarity from the pulpit today. We pray for clarity of minds that we would be able to hear and understand, and we just pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine the text and and drive it home in the hearts of all of us today. We just ask that you would be glorified in this time. In Christ's name, amen. Yes, I'm sorry. Children, <laughs> who are anxiously waiting and being very patient. Um, you can go to Children's Church. It's ages fourth, four years old to second grade, I think. And you are dismissed. I'm sorry, I should have done that right off the bat. And I see some very relieved parents there. The kids were being fine. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 15. During his second missionary journey, Paul left the country of Macedonia, the region of Macedonia. He traveled south until he reached the city of Athens in the region of Achaia. Acts 17 records Paul's powerful proclamation of Christ to the leading philosophers and and the people of the city of Athens. There he challenged their empty worship of, of idols and declared to them that there was a God, one God, the Lord God Almighty, who had created all things. Apparently this, this grabbed their attention and, and they really didn't challenge Paul's exaltation of this single supreme God, Yahweh. But then Paul said something that turned the crowd against him. Acts 17.30 records Paul's words to the people. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17.30-31 When Paul gets to the gospel, the people become affronted and, and they reject his message. What is it that Paul said that drew such criticism and disdain? Was it the need for the people to repent, to turn from their sinful, idolatrous pursuits and instead worship the one living God? Or perhaps was there contempt for his words because he warned of a a coming day of judgment for those who persisted in the pursuit of unrighteousness? Or perhaps did they ridicule him because he proclaimed to them that, that God had appointed a man, Jesus the Messiah, as both the righteous judge and the standard by which their evil deeds would be judged. No, the text does not say that any of those gospel elements turned the Athenians against Paul. What then were the crucial words that Paul uttered that were so offensive to the people? In the next verses we read, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, 
and a woman named Demarius and others with them. The, the, the dividing line, which the majority of the crowd refused to cross, was believing in the resurrection of the dead. Verse 32. Literally, this is, this is the raising up or the rising up of corpses. Paul called the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proof that God had appointed Christ to be that hinge upon which all of history swings. The resurrection is the guarantee, the assurance, the the ground for belief that Jesus is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. Now, in the people's rejection, they use the word dead, and and it's a plural there. In other words, corpses, which indicates that Paul was warning the Athenians that this world, this world that you can see and touch and taste and hear, and this, this world was not the extent of their existence. There would be a day yet future when they too would be raised and face Christ. This was the truth that they could not accept. Arising from the dead was as unacceptable to the Greek Athenians as it was to the Jewish Sadducees. And looking at the religious landscape of today, it's really not that big a leap from 1st century Athens to the 21st century West. In April of 2017, the BBC news outlet reported that one in four self-proclaimed Christians, okay, one, one out of every four people who called themselves a Christian in Great Britain did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. One in four. Now, we know that survey data by its very nature is somewhat untrustworthy. But really, there's enough here in these numbers to recognize that there is a significant problem. And it's a problem that hasn't stayed on that side of the pond. Can we simply cut out those parts of the Gospels that are unpalatable to us? Can we simply accept those elements of Jesus' life that we like but then reject those that rub us the wrong way. We have a fixer-upper mentality in America today. Can't we just remake the good news into our own version of the better news? This was the problem that was facing the first century church in Corinth and remains as an, an insidious attack on the gospel even today. Let's see how the Holy Spirit addressed this crisis through the pen of Paul. So we turn our attention to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter, where we will see here that the gospel is good news because it is true news. The gospel is good news because it is true news. In our text for today, we'll see that God underscores the necessity of believing in the resurrection as part of the gospel message. Our problem is that We too frequently relegate any talk of the resurrection to March or April on the calendar. The resurrection is not intended to be a once a year topic, even if the whole Sunday is devoted to it. For Paul, the raising of the dead was always on the tip of his tongue as he shared the love of Christ to spiritually dead men and women. So in these opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, We will briefly look at three gospel facts to deepen our love for the good news. Three gospel facts to deepen our love for the good news. Specifically in verses 1 through 2, we'll see the first gospel fact. And that's that the gospel is central. The gospel is central. Verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Following his evangelistic effort in Athens, Paul journeyed 50 miles or so southwest to Corinth, which is one of the largest commercial cities in the Roman Empire. Acts 18 highlights some of the, some of Paul's 18 months stay there in, in, um, in the city of Corinth, and he was there in the time frame of AD 50 to AD 52. Now, during that time, Acts 14, I'm sorry, Acts 18, verse 4, states that Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, what was the content of his message? 
in Acts 18.6, he was solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. This was not something the Jews wanted to receive. And they largely rejected this message. So Paul turned to the Gentile audience for this same gospel message, and the church in Corinth was eventually established. However, not not long after Paul left Corinth to continue on his ministry uh, opportunities in other areas, not long after he left Corinth, however, the church there began to experience serious problems. It seems that a, a, a false theology had gained traction within that congregation. As one commentator has surmised, this error was rooted in, you know, rooted in a radical pneumatism that denied the value and significance of the physical body that was expressed in some way by a somewhat over-realized or spiritualized eschatology. Now, I know commentators are supposed to help you understand, but um, sometimes they're not all that clear. In other words, what, what he's saying is some of the people became enamored with an overemphasis on, on the spiritual or immaterial part of man, especially with respect to, to gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit and, and speculations about what the future would be like after death. I mean, after all, if, if the gifts are spiritual and we're concerned about our own spiritual condition, do we, do we even really need to worry about the physical body? And I think Paul addresses some of that in chapter 6 of this epistle. But do we need to address, you know, do we need to worry about the physical body? It, it seems kind of unnecessary. As supposedly more spiritual people, more spiritual people arose in the church, they caused confusion and division among the believers until there were individual factions that aligned with one teacher or the other teacher, and some of the people even began rejecting Paul's authority as an apostle of Christ. So during his stay in Ephesus, in the year AD 55, so three to five years later, Paul's forced to respond yet again to a report of problems in this troubled church of Corinth. Verse 1 in the NASB and the King James essentially say the same thing. It says, now I make known to you. The now indicates that Paul is changing gears. He's moving from the topics of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to those of chapter 15. He's changing to the subject of the resurrection, which encompasses the majority of this chapter, of which we'll only look at a piece. The ESV renders the beginning of verse 1 as, now I would remind you. So what's Paul saying? Is he, is he trying to tell them something I'm making known to you, or am I reminding you about something? Well, the verb means to make known, to reveal, to declare. Uh, this is the same verb in the same form that Paul uses in the introduction of his earlier epistle, uh, but that one to the church in Galatia. And there he wrote in chapter 1, uh, verse 11 of Galatians, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I would have you know that. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, what Paul wants the believers to know is the gospel. But this is not something that's new for the Corinthians. This is what Paul presented to the Jews on his arrival and, pro- and proclaimed to the Gentiles during his stay there in Corinth. According to this verse, this is the gospel which I preached to you. This is old news, but it's good news. And he brings it to the forefront of their minds. Just a couple verses later, Paul will say that this gospel is of first importance. It's of primary significance. The gospel is central in the mind of Paul, and it should be for these believers as well. We know that Despite the problems, and boy, there, there were problems in the church of Corinth, Paul is indeed writing to fellow believers. He calls them brethren, brothers in verse 1, and then addresses the impact of the gospel in their lives. Paul had preached the glorious message of Christ to them, and the text indicates that they had received this call to faith in the Messiah. They took the side of the gospel, actively receiving its message and submitting to the authority of the common command to repentance and new life. This is the gospel that was preached and that they received and by which Paul says they stand firm. 
The form of this verb for stand emphasizes the fact that their lives were reoriented when they came under the lordship of Jesus Christ and that the effects of this change in their life persist even when Paul took up his pen to write his letter years later. They're, they're, they were standing firm. They were um, resolved in following after Christ. Their acceptance of the gospel and of the faith that they were exhibiting were were albeit they were immature and stumbling at times, but it was a genuine newness of life. And it evidenced the fact that they were true believers and followers of Jesus Christ. The gospel was preached to them, and they received it, and now they stand upon the truth of it. This is the gospel which, Paul tells them, they are saved by. They're in a continuous state of, of being saved, if you will. That's how the ESV says it. Not because of anything that they've initiated, but because God saved them through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. This glorious message of God continues to work in the lives of the believers as they are more and more, as Paul would say later in Romans, conformed to the image of his son. So the gospel is so central that, as Paul warns at the end of verse 2, that even even deviating from the content of his preaching can have disastrous effects. After stating that it's the gospel by which you are saved, Paul provides closure to this thought. At the end of verse 2, we read, if you hold fast, that is, if you retain, if you have a firm grip of the word which I preach to you. But what if they don't? What what if they deviate? What if their course is off by a few degrees and they start drifting or they start actively going in a different direction? What does that mean? If they do, then it will reveal that they have believed in vain. The idea is that their believing would have been empty and worthless and of no eternal benefit. There's a condition here. It says, if you, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you. That sounds scary, doesn't it? Probably should be. Paul is not, now I want to be very careful here, very clear. Paul is not saying that there are people in the Corinthian church who are true believers who are in danger of losing their salvation. That is not what he was saying. That would go against the tenor of everything in the Bible. God is the one who saves and keeps his faithful servants. But what is he saying? Well, the construction of this if is not alleging, you know, you can't assume that the if part is actually true. What they're trying to say here is, if it's true, then these will definitely be the consequences. So that if someone did not really cling to the truth of the gospel, if they had not received the message of the cross and they were not standing firm in the grace that was given, what this would mean is then that they were truly not really saved. If this is the case, then it wouldn't matter how spiritual that person might seem. It wouldn't matter what ministry involvements they might have or what charitable acts they might be engaged in. Such a false belief results in worthless efforts. In his book, Burnout, The High Cost of Achievement, Dr. Herbert Freudenberger introduced the world to the concept of burnout by beginning with a picture. If you have ever seen a building that has been burned out, you know it's a devastating sight. What had once been a throbbing, vital structure is now deserted. Where there had once been activity, there are now only crumbling reminders of energy and life. Some bricks or concrete may be left, some outline of windows. Indeed, the outer shell may seem almost intact. Only if you venture inside will you be struck by the full force of the desolation. The burnout that Paul is addressing is of a far more serious nature. It's not that he's talking about burnout, but the picture is the same. Can you have a structure that looks pristine on the outside, but inside? It's a desolation. It's worthless. It's of no value. The danger that Paul warns of is that some would hear the gospel being accurately preached 
And they would mentally assent to most of that message. And like some of the self-proclaimed Christians in England, they're willing to accept most of the good news, but not all of it. You cannot pick and choose what you like or don't like in the good news. If you deviate from the message of the cross, then what you have is no longer that which was preached to you. You have not believed a partial gospel or an improved gospel, but you have put your trust in a false gospel, which is not good news at all. No matter how you might try to play the part by by working under the guise of doing good works, doing good Christian works, you will resemble the house in the doctor's illustration. A structure, some windows, some siding perhaps, but the interior will show a different story. Despite the promise of outwardly visible goodness, the interior will be worthless, valueless, and of no enduring value. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this as well when he remembers the bodies of the unbelieving Israelites scattered throughout the wilderness east of the Jordan River who were seeking to enter the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews writes, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. If the danger of unbelief or false belief is so real, what then is this word that's being preached that must be believed? Returning to 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul answers that very question. And a key component of his answer is that this message is based on the historical truth of the resurrection. In other words, a significant part of this message is the gospel fact that the resurrection is certain. The resurrection is certain. Picking up in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The gospel is central because it's of first importance, verse verse 3 says, first importance. And that, is also reflect, and that is also reflected in, in the pedigree of this message. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. In 1 Corinthians 2.1, earlier in this book, Paul reminds them, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2. What Paul received was the testimony of God. Again, looking at Galatians, in Galatians 1.15, Paul had said that God was, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's Galatians 1.15. Paul's commission to preach was from God. And the message that he preached was centered on Christ. He even opens this first letter to the book of first letter to the Corinthians with the words, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's to be an emissary. Paul received a message from God, and he has faithfully delivered this to the church in Corinth. This message is the gospel. In these few verses, Paul paints the picture of the gospel. Not not detailing every every nuance and every doctrine with a fine-tipped brush as a painter might do, but instead he, he's using broad strokes with a, a wide brush and he's just swathing across so that we get you know the general broad strokes and the main points of the gospel message. Uh, Paul isn't trying to elaborate on the full gospel in this chapter. He's trying to get to the point where he can he can address the problems related to the resurrection through most of First Corinthians 15. But to do that, he has to talk about the gospel because the gospel, part of the gospel is the resurrection and the gospel is essential for the resurrection.
So he's speaking just very broad in a broad manner here. And um, so really we can't look at it very carefully. Paul didn't have time to address it. He would run out of scroll and we will run out of time if we dive into that too far. So we will be brief as well. So first of all, we see in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that Christ died for our sins. The idea that, that, that Jesus died on, on behalf of us or that he died in lieu of the punishment that our sins deserved, it's magnificent. Christ didn't die for his sins. He had no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and 1 Peter 2.22 and 1 John 3.5. Those attest to that. Jesus had no sin. He did not have to die for his sins. He died for our sins. In other words, this was a, a penal substitutionary death. He took our place by taking the punishment that was due to us for our transgressions against a holy God. In his next letter to this church, Paul reminds them, he made him, speaking of God, speaking of Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus, was, Jesus, Jesus died for the sins of the believers according to the scriptures, verse 3 says. Where do the scriptures tell us that Jesus was going to die for our sins? This is prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah writes, But he was pierced. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed which is why Peter later proclaims, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he may bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. In 1 Peter 3, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15.4 that not only did Christ die, but that he was buried There's no doubt about his death. With nothing else that could be physically done for Jesus, his followers buried him. John records that they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. John 19. Again, The scriptures attest to this. As Isaiah continues in 53.8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. When many people think of the gospel, It is simply, Jesus died for my sins. While that may be true for that person, there's no depth of understanding. And it frequently goes no further than that. In contrast, these next words of Paul are the really, really the focus of his message in these first 11 verses. And, and it forms the basis of his, basis of his argument that, that continues beyond into the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. So the second gospel fact is found here. The resurrection is certain. How do we know that the resurrection, which was rejected both in that day and by many even today, actually happened? This section will identify four proofs of the certainty of the resurrection. First, we see in verses 3 through 4 that the resurrection was written in the scriptures. It was written in the scriptures. Paul continues in verse 4. And that he is raised, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The verbal form stands in striking contrast that he was raised, stands in contrast to the other verbs. And it's, it's giving the idea that not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but he remains like that. He's in a living state. He, he has been raised forever, never again to see the grave. And as the Old Testament predicted, that 
Messiah would die for the sins of his people, the Old Testament also predicted that he would not remain as a decaying corpse. Psalm 16.10 declares this in the clearest terms. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Also in Psalm 22, we see that, that the suffering one who, whom God has laid in the dust of, the, in the dust of death, and it's verse 15 of Psalm 22.15, laid him in the dust of death and whose hands and feet were pierced will be the one who later will tell of your name to his brethren and will praise Yahweh in the midst of the assembly. These verses underscore that the the resurrection will be a a physical reality, not some unverifiable, spiritual-only rising from the dead. This was the rising again of a dead corpse, life where before there had only been a most gruesome death. If that is true, if that is true, if Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, then surely there's someone who can testify to the truth of this miracle. Paul continues to show that the resurrection is certain by by reminding us of a second truth. The resurrection was witnessed by those closest to Jesus. Verse 5 continues. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, the word appeared clearly indicates that these were that these appearances were not they're not visions they could be seen by human eyes those who loved Jesus the most and who spent the most time with him were the first ones that Paul mentions these men represent the inner circle of those who followed Jesus they were recognized as being with him during his ministry when Jesus was being subjected to the injustice of a, of a kangaroo court on the night that he was taken. And he was before the high priest. While that was going on, Peter was down below. And when Peter was below, waiting to see what would happen to Jesus, Peter was confronted three different times in one night. What was he confronted about? Well, it was recognized that he was with Jesus. They knew that he was associated with Jesus. And being fearful of his life, Peter regrettably denied knowing his Lord three times. Yes, these disciples were closest to Jesus, and they longed to have him back, but they would be the ones with the most to potentially lose if if they were to go and declare him risen. The authorities knew who to watch for. They knew the ones who were with Jesus. And had they started proclaiming a falsehood, it would have been squelched quickly. They had the most to lose. But Jesus appeared to them. After his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus appeared to him. And then they gladly lived in this danger as the Holy Spirit emboldened them to to manifest the truth of the resurrection. I mean, shortly after this, Peter stood before a hostile crowd. In Acts 2, and he boldly preached to them, saying, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter preached the absolute truth of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ to a people that were in the best position to either verify or deny the validity of his statements. It was a bold proclamation, but not one based on whimsical wishes. It was based upon the bedrock of objective fact, and of personal witness. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's all well and good. I mean, how can you believe the testimony of a few people who may have had a a vested interest in obscuring the truth? Well, let me ask you, in that day, in, in, in first century Israel, how else would you prove the objective reality 
of the resurrection. First of all, the, the body was gone, which prompted the attempted cover-up by the authorities as narrated in Matthew 28. Secondly, a good proof of this event would be corroborated by eyewitness testimony. Now, before you discount the importance, the importance of eyewitness testimony, I'm going to ask you to think back over the stories that, that, that dominated the news over the past weeks and months. Our national media was obsessed with an allegation against an appointee to the Supreme Court of the United States. Our country was largely polarized down party lines over an allegation by one person and a denial by the accused. And just imagine how different this story would have been if there had even been just a single witness to that alleged event. One person who, who would have been in that room on that occasion. One voice who could clarify the events of that night. How would that have swayed the news stories? One person is all it would have taken. Even in our modern day, we would have gladly accepted and swiftly acted upon the credible testimony of this third person, this third individual. So why then do so many people have such a hard time applying the same standards of belief to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But the scriptures state that there wasn't just a solitary witness, but there were many, many eyewitnesses who saw Jesus bodily risen from the grave. Not only was the resurrection witnessed by those closest to Jesus, but the text says it was also witnessed by those who were near to Jesus. They were near. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul writes, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Brethren, these are brothers, these are people who follow Christ. 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, evidently, this, this great group of witnesses is comprised of, of people who follow Christ out of varying levels of discipleship or uh, opportunity. They were not those who were closest to him, but they were near to him. Now, Paul does not elaborate on when exactly this event occurred, um, but his qualification is that, that most of those who, who, um, who did witness that remain until now. That, that's a significant statement. While some of these witnesses have died in the 20 years or so between the resurrection and when Paul's writing the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, while, while some have passed away, some have slept, some have uh, gone to the grave, um, there are many who still persist. And the idea is they might even be known to these Corinthian believers. They know who to ask. So what kind of witnesses are these? They're witnesses that for the past 20 years have been maintaining a credible testimony of seeing the risen Christ. And they've continued with this over the past two decades. And if this wasn't convincing enough, Paul offers a fourth truth, testifying to the certainty of the resurrection. Like like ripples, like if you take a pebble and you drop it into a smooth pond, you see the pebble hit the water and then the ripples start coming out and the concentric circles start moving out. And Paul kind of has, has that picture as he's writing here. Um, you know, first you see that he moves from the witnesses that were closest to Jesus to those that were near to Jesus. And finally he states that the resurrection was witnessed by the one furthest from Jesus in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. In one sense, Paul himself is the most convincing of all these witnesses. I mean, it's one thing to, to, to believe what you long to see. I mean, if you had asked those that were closest to Jesus and those that were near to Jesus after he had been crucified but before he was resurrected in those three days, if you had asked them if, if they would like to see Jesus raised from the dead, they, they would have been thrilled. It would have been a dream come true to undo the resurrection. They would have been happy to hear that. But that was not the case for Paul. 
If you had told Paul prior to Acts 9.3 that he would see the risen Christ, it would not have been a dream come true. It would have been a nightmare for him. At that time, he did not believe in Jesus. And he was actively hunting Christians and breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was the one furthest from Christ. The one with the absolute least interest in witnessing the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in God's wisdom and grace, he allowed that very thing to happen to Paul. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 9. You can look at that later. Despite his initial active persecution of the Christian church prior to knowing Christ, Paul declares that God had created him for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Again, writing to the church in Galatia, Paul declared that God, quote, had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Galatians 1.15. He carries this, this birth concept from this earlier letter of Galatians over to his letter of Corinthians. In 15.8, Paul states that he is like one untimely born. The language is, is graphic. As Paul is literally describing himself like a stillborn child or a miscarriage. He's one that's born before his time and he's incapable of sustaining life by his own efforts. It's only by divine intervention that he has any chance of life. He is the last one chosen to witness the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. And in his estimation, he's the least deserving of this which makes his testimony all the more credible. Why is this true? Because of Paul's personal history. He continues in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. As Paul begins his personal testimony in these last three verses, we see the the third of our three gospel facts to deepen our love for the good news in our text today. We've seen that the gospel is central, that the resurrection is certain. Now we will see that the glorious, that we see the glorious reality that the believer is changed in verses 9 through 11. This is where the good and good news becomes especially personal to us. In verse 9, Paul acknowledged that what he was before meeting the risen Christ on that dusty road to Damascus is completely, completely abhorrent to him now. Because of this, he does use a stronger word for because. Because he cannot cannot reconcile the extremities of his life, the extreme positions of his life. As an unbeliever, he had had capacity for opposition and had actively acted upon this as he hunted down Christians with the intent of stamping out this radical group. This is the first aspect of being changed. He or she starts in the position of being completely opposed to God, in opposition to God. Paul will later write in Romans 8-7 that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This indictment is, is so pervasive within the whole of the person. The prophet Jeremiah recorded God's view of the unregenerate heart. In Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 9, he writes, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are desperately wicked, and they're, they're riddled with the cancer of sin. We are in need of a new heart and a new spirit, Ezekiel says. Paul needed it, and God gave it to him through the only way possible, by grace through faith in Christ. He continues in 1 Corinthians 15.10, writing as a new creation and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he writes, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. Paul did not effect such a radical change. God did. No longer does he have the capacity for opposition. Now he has the capacity for opportunity. Like those who are saved by the gospel of Christ in verse 2, Paul likewise is holding fast to the word and his belief is not in vain. It was not, it was not empty or devoid of impact. <clears throat> he now has the capacity to honor God through the ministry of the word. 
For this reason, he continues in verse 10, stating, but I labored more than all of them, speaking of the other apostles. He may be the least of the apostles, but he consistently worked to the point of exhaustion. As one commentator describes, this this exhaustive laboring points to the weariness which follows the straining of all his powers, reaching to the utmost. Speaking of all the apostles, he reminds the Corinthians earlier in this letter of their labor in the gospel. He writes, To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. How do Paul and the other apostles work to the point of extreme fatigue like this? Notice also that three times, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, that Paul acknowledges that the grace of God was really what undergirded the, the work of Yahweh's servants. The grace of God. Because of that, he will readily acknowledge, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, in verse 10. The final aspect related to the believer being changed is seen in our final verse for today, verse 11. Now, He has a capacity for outreach. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This brings Paul's thought full circle back to verse 1, where he began by highlighting the importance of the gospel. What he says is true for all believers. We have the great opportunity and responsibility to proclaim Christ, to share the gospel with those who, by the grace of God, may believe even as the Corinthians did. What was to be preached to an unbelieving world? That which is of first importance, which we have received from the word of God, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day. But what about you sitting here today? It may be that some of you are content to mingle in the crowd of believers because it feels like a safe environment. But you yourself have not really received this word into your life. You have nothing upon which to stand firm because you are not really saved. If that is your case, then you are not safe mingling among God's elect. Instead, you're in the perilous position of looking like a Christian on the outside. But on the inside, you're like that burned-out house, and your efforts will be vain and worthless. Instead, listen to the words from Paul's Paul's appeal to the people in Athens again. He says, Therefore, having... Overlook the times of ignorance. God is now declaring that men, uh, declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Even as God raised up this man, Jesus Christ, from the dead, he will also deliver you from spiritual death and deliver you to spiritual life and give you a resurrected body in the last days. But you have to turn. You have to turn from your errant way and receive his word of grace that is preached to you. However, perhaps you're somewhat acquainted with the things of the Bible, but you dig your feet in when you hear about the resurrection. Paul's words have been preached to the Athenians, published to the Corinthians, and proclaimed to you. What are you going to do with it? 
Can you accept with joy the fact of the resurrection, knowing that it's a sign to those who believe that they too on one day will be raised to newness with life in Christ, with Christ? The Bible confirms the proof of the resurrection with evidences that would have overwhelmed both the courts of that day as well as our modern judicial settings today. There was an abundance of human eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ and, more importantly, God's inerrant, inspired word attests to the fact of the resurrection. Jesus proclaimed in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and that those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There will be a final resurrection. Which side will you be on? The resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment? Come to Christ today and submit to the totality of what he has said in his word and you can enjoy serving a loving master and finally be able to declare But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. Let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. We're thankful that it is inspired, that it is without error, and it's effectual. Lord, you've given us what we need to know. Your spirit convicts of sin. Your spirit illumines your word. We seek to enjoy the salvation that Christ has provided by dying for our sins. Lord, I can think of no better way than to honor him and magnify your name than to cling to what we have already read today. Help the resurrection to be not just something that we think about at Easter time, but help us to realize it is the proof that you have selected this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, and exalted him and pointed us to him. The resurrection is the proof of that, and it's an encouragement to those who believe. Help us to cling to that fact and to look forward to that time when we are raised to newness of life and body in the final days or upon our death, when we can enjoy our time with you and with the Lamb around the throne. May we glorify you today, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.